Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Today, we'll be discussing the need to support local and distributed infrastructure for food scrap recycling and composting. I'm excited to be joined by my colleague, Brenda Platt, as well as two folks who are helping to keep compost local. Tom Gilbert is a Vermont farmer who runs Black Dirt Farm, and Laura Holmes is a worker owner of the Cerro Cooperative, a food waste pickup service provider for a wide range of commercial clients in the Boston area. So welcome to the show, both of you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you're both a part of the sustainable food movement. Could you tell us just super briefly what it is you do, what your businesses are, and how you're supporting your local agricultural economy? Tom, maybe we can start with you. Sure. Um, I own and operate Black Dirt Farm. We're in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, and our, our business model is designed to mimic the carbon cycle in a mature ecosystem. And so we start by going off the farm and collecting discarded food, we serve about 90 businesses and institutions and collect about 30 tons a week. And then we forage laying hens on that compost mix and ship eggs throughout Vermont and down into Boston. And then we make compost and worm castings with the resulting material. And then we also grow a small number of crops here. And in terms of the local economy, we, you know, we really prioritize getting food into the mouths of our neighbors and um, do a lot of solidarity work locally to just build our community more than anything because I think that's fundamentally sort of the, the stepping off point for everything else and the economic and system side of it is just the mechanism. Yeah, hi. Seto Cooperative does also have an acronym to it. The CERO in both Spanish and English stands for Cooperative Energy Recycling and Organics. So we started our organics hauling business, which helps businesses, commercial entities, larger and smaller, learn how to source separate clean compostable material. And then we provide this, so we train folks and and educate as to the importance of that. And then we help them set up for service. We provide anywhere from daily to weekly to on-call pickups of compostable material with our fleet of four trucks. And we transport that material both to local farm-based windrow composting facilities and to dedicated farm-based anaerobic digesters. Dedicated meaning that they only, only process yard food and animal waste as opposed to the big digesters you see that also process wastewater. So we're a, a, a highest and best use business And that's a lot of reason why customers who work with us choose us, as well as for for being big service. As far as the economy, our business was built by folks, grassroots leaders in our black and brown communities who have been most impacted by environmental injustice, as well as economic injustice and other forms of oppression. And they, you know, decided they wanted to build a business. They wanted it to be worker owned to establish good, dignified, green collar jobs, we were calling them back at the beginning, 
ways that that people in the community could make a, a decent living, even have the opportunity to own businesses or be part of owning cooperative businesses while improving the sustainability and environmental practices in in the community and have very quickly seen how that's part of a local circular food economy. In the most literal sense, uh, I described how we deliver the compost out to the farms. Well, in the growing season, like now, once we dump the food scraps into the compost piles and wash out the truck, we're often reloading that truck with composted soil products that we bring back to the city to support urban agriculture. So that's a very literal manifestation where we're using this year's food scraps to uh, produce next year's food. Very cool. Lauren, Tom, it's, I'm so blessed to know you both. I think I've been following your efforts since we wrote Growing Local Fertility, a guide to community composting back in 2014. Laura, you know, as I recall, Zero formed after Massachusetts passed that state law in 2013, which banned large food waste generators, large food waste generators, I think of one who are producing one ton or more a week of food scraps, banning them from landfilling or burning, right? And the law, right, it created these new opportunities for food recycling business and businesses and interests. And I remember you talking about, you know, this passionate group of black and brown folks from Boston's neighborhoods you just mentioned, how they were like, hey man, we deserve a slice of this economic pie. Can you just talk about, just for a few seconds, like how that law actually spurred the creation of Zero? Well, it's interesting. I think that my first day on the job, I got hired by this group of folks. And what they knew was they wanted to do something in recycling. They wanted to do something green and they wanted to do a co-op. And I was their first hire. I was hired to be the startup manager. And on my first day on the job, I went to a zero waste workshop with, with Ruth Abbey and Gary List and folks that we all know well as being the international experts on all this stuff. And, and, and at the same time, they were announcing Massachusetts DEP food waste ban, which was to take effect in 2014. This was the fall of 2012. And we were just looking for what would be this recycling thing. And it was at the same time that the, the market was starting to fall out of the other commodities because our single stream recycling was giving us such crap. So, so it, it, I was having a hard time landing on something. And as soon as we learned about the food waste ban, we put all our effort and before long decided, you know what, we're just going to, we're just, this is just all we're going to do. And we're going to get really good at it. And I think we've gotten pretty good at it. We're now harvesting about a hundred tons a week of wow. clean compostable material. Wow. Not going into the landfill and it's not going into the incinerators and it's not going into dirty digesters. So we're pretty proud of that. Should be. Tom, your farm is kind of a different kind of worker owner business, right? It's a family farm. So can you just, why are family farms important for a healthy food and ag system? I think Laura really captured all of this, those things really well. I mean, I think really fundamentally local control is highly critical to being able to control the, the where resources go, but also how they go there. And I think having a collective ownership model like Sero is super inspiring and wonderful because there's a, a high level of transparency and accountability built into that. Um, that's really inspiring and, and I think wonderfully effective. I think a family farm model is, is a alternative structure to that that 
can capture many of those things, especially if you if you put your focus on them. But it would be easy also to to um, to miss miss some of those outcomes as well. But for us, we we put a lot into our local economy in general as a family, both through the farm, but also as participants. And you know, I think if we're really hoping to to manage resources effectively, to capture their full value for the community, but also to address issues of white supremacy and gender violence and all of these other aspects of society that we don't think of as necessarily purely economic issues. Really, at the end of the day, all of that work boils down to relationships. You know, it's, it's we need to build currencies of trust that allow us to act in solidarity and allow us to build out economies and communities that have really clearly articulated values. And I think that's, that's the most powerful thing is we do so much work with all sorts of partners, other small farms, uh, nonprofits, schools, and the more we interact on a personal basis, and the more we really establish shared values, the more we can define those goals. And the, the challenge with the way that some of these systems are, are and markets are starting to industrialize is those entities that are that are coming in, say, from out of state to take resources again back out of state, for instance they're never going to be at the table in the, in the local conversation and they're never going to be part of figuring out what is best for the community. And I think that all of these things come down to building intrinsic economies where the people who live with these systems ultimately are the decision makers about how best to utilize them and making sure that the benefits of those things are spread widely. You know, I think local control is a is an important thing and having lots of small operations involved means we get to, you know, decentralize that and distribute the benefits. Well, here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, we couldn't agree with you more on that point about local control. And, you know, you're not the only farmer doing this in Vermont. Talk about some of the, the other farmers you're working with. What's, what's the landscape in Vermont for creating kind of this local economy and healthy, sustainable food system. Because what's happening, we're going to get into the developments, as you mentioned, with resources leaving the state. But right now, leading up the last few years, you've been building something else in Vermont, right? Right. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that I'm most inspired about is, is we really have a culture of mutualism, you know, and there is incredible information sharing and a lot of lateral trust and solidarity. And so, I think ultimately what we benefit from is having more than just sort of a constellation of um, or, or random random businesses here and there doing great things, but we really have a more of a constellation where those the, the dots are getting connected and then you get to fill in a bigger picture than any one individual operation would otherwise get to do. So around here, for instance, we've formed the Center for an Agricultural Economy in 2009 and, you know, really just actively building out all the infrastructure in all the gaps in our local, highly local food system of seven towns. So that's everything from food processing space to distribution to trainings for farms and food processors and food justice work. And then between the farms here, you know, we have just such a wonderful community of growers and, and composters and processors that there's just a, an incredibly open environment that is not based on competition and is based on that premise that all, all ships rise and sink together. And so we, we do a lot of information sharing. People are, you know, somebody figures something out, whether it's on something ultimately sort of banal, like workers comp. And instead of sort of hoarding that information and building intellectual property, 
really there's a sort of a notion that knowledge is part of the commons and that we all will benefit from it. So I think we, we have all sorts of wonderful aspects of that. Laura, in Massachusetts, you're, you know, you're not the only community-based composter operating there. Are you finding similar sharing in your network? Yeah, I think we do. I tried, I have tried to formalize this in fits and starts of bringing together community composters in our area to try primarily in the interest of kind of building power us against us against all the, the big industry people. And we're, we're tiny, even together, we're, we're a, a, a tiny bit of the market. But so we, we do share, we do consult one another, but we also compete. And we're often pitted against one another in the contracting process. So uh, I'm not gonna say it's, uh, we have it figured out. I think it's challenging. There's certainly, I think the bottom line for all of us is that there's plenty of work to go around and that there's much more for us to be gained by working together for the best kinds of policies. But not all community composters are, are the same either. Some of them are starting to get kind of maybe not necessarily bought, but partnered up with some of the others in the industry. And so we can't really just assume that because we're small composters, we, we all feel the same way about stuff. I'm just being real. Yeah, and we, we facilitate a national cultivating community composter coalition. And there's such a wide range of members in our coalition. Zero is one of them. We have, we have for-profit, non-profit, worker-owned. There are different sizes. And Tom, what you described about sharing information, Laura, you're in, you're in one particular market area. So and there's a lot of you and I can see where you compete. But nationally, we're really seeing a lot of sharing of information among our members to lift, to lift everybody up. But, well, if I can just add to that, Brenda, in fact, through your network, your national network, we've started a smaller group conversation among the ones that are worker-owned co-ops and more interested in solidarity economies and, and that kind of stuff. And we share information freely with one another that we might not with, with, with others in the group. That, so the network actually not only helped us find each other, but helped us kind of understand those forces better. All right. So let's, let me ask you something just about what do you see as the, before these more recent trends, we'll, we'll talk about this with the industry, larger scale facilities kind of siphoning off, talk about competition, right? Siphoning off some of your, your clients and the materials that you were handling before these new trends started happening. Were you experiencing growth? Were you like getting more clients, getting more material, producing high quality stuff? What, what, what was that looking like? And Tom, let's start with you. Yeah, you asked Laura about the Massachusetts ban on organics going to landfill. Vermont has a similar ban. And so we, while well, I was in the market, not under the black dirt handle, but otherwise we were having to fight for elbow room at the time. And we were mostly competing with trash haulers at the time, not necessarily other bootstrap haulers. But then when the, with the passage of the law, it really did open up the market and we saw tremendous growth very quickly. We're, we're not a growth oriented business. So our whole premise is to sort of grow as necessary, but not beyond necessary. But that's a, that's a hard place to hold in a larger competitive market, especially when you're talking about not the local farms that I was describing before, but multi-state and multinational companies. 
But the market for us in the last several years, since the state opened things up for depackaging, has shifted quite a bit. And while we haven't lost, I mean, we have lost tonnage. We, in a very quick period of time, we lost 30% of our tonnage in several months, which was very challenging for us as somebody who operates with sort of just enough, but no more type, type mentality. We've since been able to make up the tonnage, but the challenge for us is that with depackaging, which I guess we'll talk about a little bit more in a little bit, we lost all of our major scale generators. And so as Lord knows, and anybody in the, this business, economically, it's, it's way more profitable to service a larger business like a grocery store than a, a school that's just going to generate a single 48 gallon tote. And so we've, we've maintained our customer base and made up the tonnage, but we're servicing way more small stops. So for us, the biggest issue has been um, a, a dramatic decrease in our efficiency. So unlike Sarah, we're in a rural market and everything is very spread out. And so if you're having to drive miles just to go get one tote, you know, it takes us at a grocery store a minute and a half per container. Whereas a single tote school, it takes us three and a half to five minutes per container. And you can't make that up in a day by swapping a 30 tote stop out for a one tote stop. So we're our our numbers are pretty steady, but our, our efficiency and our margin and our are, have all gone down and our margin or our costs have gone up dramatically. Well, actually, let's talk about what is it? What is a depackager and how is that hurting your business? What, 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 what is happening there with this depackaging facilities? Well, okay. So with, I'll, I'll talk about depackaging. Really, the depackaging is really more of an indicator of the larger problem, and it's an, it has an acute impact. But the bigger problem is really a laissez-faire attitude towards markets and regulation and this sort of tolerance for contamination that, that we seem to have a cultural bias towards. So depackagers are machines that separate food material from their packaging, and they are used as an alternative to what's called source separation, meaning the separation of compostable materials from non-compostable materials at the, the point where it's generated. And these machines are totally impressive in what they can do. I mean, it, it really is an impressive thing to be able to take pallets of, of tomato sauce and dump it in a hopper and have it crush everything and separate it. But they also result in, especially with filmed packaged materials versus say cans, they do result in those organic materials getting contaminated. And so it's, a, it's an inherent downgrade of the material. So what's happening right now in Vermont is that stores that were source separating for over a decade are now just throwing all of their, their materials in a, in a bin with the packaging on it. And so materials that previously didn't have plastic in them now are guaranteed to have say 1% plastic in them. And as a side note, the other irony is that um, in this sort of effort to make recycling and composting easier, we're taking a stream of material, some of that packaging that was being recycled and we've now downgraded it to the point where it's either being incinerated or it's going to much lower value recycling markets. The biggest challenge is that not only does that offer a level of convenience that we can't and don't really want to compete with, but it also puts us in a position where we start operating out of fear that we that our standards for source separation are too high and that when a, an alternative contract offer shows up that says, oh, you don't have to meet any standard, you can just unthinkingly throw everything in one bin. You know, most grocery stores, even a smaller local grocery store is going to find that attractive. It's just a little less work. And so what it does is it starts downgrading the overall market and having and, and changing what the baseline for that market 
is, and it starts saying that the norm is contamination and source separation is an added hassle. And if, if, the, if the thing that we do to protect soil becomes an added hassle, then it, it gets externalized in the market and suddenly the issue isn't a market for services, the issue is market for tolerance of contamination. Before we get to our next question, we're just going to take a short break. Thanks for listening to Building Local Power. If you're enjoying this conversation, I hope you'll consider heading over to ilsr.org donate to help support our work. Your donation directly supports this podcast and helps us get great guests like Tom and Lore, and it supports all the work we do here at ILSR. Visit ilsr.org donate to make a contribution today. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. Now I'll turn it back over to Brenda. On top of the contamination issues, which I think are serious, microplastics and soil is growing and plastics in general, we know are such a huge problem for the environment. But it's also this notion that the companies that can handle this mixed waste, they're large. They're industrial. They have big, big capital investment. They're not local. They're often out of state. So, you know, you're privileging by not enforcing in Vermont, by not enforcing the source separation requirements in the universal recycling law, the state is inadvertently privileging large-scale industrial sites that are outside of the state. And then you're losing this whole thing we've been talking about, about the benefits to local farmers and the local economy. And Laura, you're facing the exact same thing in Massachusetts, right? So how are you losing your clients because of the same thing happening. What's, what's happening in Massachusetts? Yeah, you know, Tom gave a, a really great explanation for, for sort of what it is. And that's, that's essentially a universal explanation. I can add a little, uh, a little context for, for how it plays out for us. So for example, we have a couple of, of our larger contracts with, with big grocery stores. I won't name them, but um, this grocery store got approached by our competition, and the, the the and I'll get I'll circle back to why this is so important in terms of of policy and definitions efforts, is that um, someone went to our grocery store and said, you know, you could capture twenty percent more of your organics if you if you just change out what you're doing now, stop source separating, just put it all in a dumpster. Just like Tom said, put everything in, we'll take care of it, we'll separate it. And greenwashing that. In other words, I can't even blame the customer because the customer is saying, isn't this great? I'm gonna boost my compost diversion by 20%. And we're gonna say, no, actually, you're gonna increase your trash diversion by 80%. (laughs) I mean, and we've been really trying to to do some education and and say to them, look, we understand you wanna capture more organics. If you insist on doing some depacking, will you also consider sustaining the clean material that you've got? Let us keep on doing that for you and, and, and handle the other in, a, in another way. The, the other thing that we have to properly characterize, and, and maybe I'm gonna sound like it's more sinister than, than the way Tom described it. And I don't, think he, I don't think he intended to portray this as any kind of a passive this is system design under capitalism. Bottom line is that you know you're designed to extract the most resources you can 
for the largest profit that you can. And the, the, the policymakers, whether they're at EPA or Environmental Protection or, or Department of Environmental Protection in our state, they're, most, they're more influenced by the industry guys than by anybody else. It's only for the last five to seven years that they've been getting used to us showing up at all of their meetings and questioning the way these things are being written. But they've been writing them. They've been, they've been writing the, the haulers. The haulers don't care, right? If you put it in the trash or if you put it in the compost or if you put it in the single stream recycling bin, they're gonna get paid to take it away. And at most of those depackers, some of them separate it. And then, you know, the, the, the waste managements and the casellas still get paid to dispose of the stuff that they separate out as contamination. They get paid to put that in their landfill or their incinerator. And they get paid for the waste to energy in the organics. What's the main problem with this not, is not only are they building depackers with state grants, Right, so these these huge profit-making capitalist international corporations that are exporting our resources are, are also reaping enormous profits, and they are, like like Tom said, they're influencing the definition of what's what to the point that they've convinced the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection that we have now excess capacity for processing the estimated. 600,000 tons a year of organics to be recovered from the waste stream. So what they've done is they've, they're calling it composting, whether you put it in a windrow compost farm, like, like what Tom runs, that turns stuff into beautiful dirt and re-earths it, where it can sequester carbon in the soil. The depack stuff is either making that kind of material and a, a liquid effluent that's got tons of microplastics in it and spewing that through the soils. And who knows what we're gonna be finding out about that years from now when people start growing extra limbs and stuff like that. Animals start showing up, not being able to have offspring and who knows what. I think about Love Canal and all those you know, unintended consequences are not being considered even at the places in the environmental protection space where they should be doing that. And so we have to fight really hard to say, this is not compost. It's not composting if it's got such and such contamination. It's not compost. You're not diverting to composting if you're mixing the food waste with sewer with uh, wastewater. What you're doing is you're turning compost into sewerage. You're not turning sewage into compost. And those toxic pellets that are in that digestate after they after they co-digest it with wastewater treatment is full of pharmaceuticals and all the toxic materials. I mean, we have scientists testify with us on this stuff all the time. Brenda, you've probably heard Laura Orlando speak about this stuff and there's papers you might wanna link to her work. Uh, yeah. well, Laura, you know, I'll just say, this is where local control and keeping it local and rooted, rooted in community and mission-driven operations and farmers who know how to protect the soil and grow healthy food is so important. You know, when you give up corporate control to the system, whether it's the ag system or the recycling system, they're all about the bottom line and making money. It's not about what kind of community, what kind of neighborhoods, what kind of soils, you know, how we want to live, what kind of food we want to eat. So this, this notion of keeping it small, 
ownership matters, scale matters, is just so critical. And it's really cross-cutting from, from whether it's ag or waste or other sectors. You know, as Jess can tell you from the last episode that we released, you may know for those who listened to it, that ILSR is part of a new coalition called Small Business Rising. And it's made up of independent businesses, you know, asking policymakers to rein in monopoly power like Amazon's. And something that we've noted in that campaign is that we don't necessarily need new legislation. We need to enforce existing, anti, in that case, antitrust laws. So in this, in our arena, and, and so Tom in Vermont, do, are you saying that the state needs to enforce the existing laws, or do you think there are new rules that are needed? Or is it a mix of both? Well, I'm going to answer your question, but I, I'd like to pick up on the thread that we were that you were just on for one more second. But but specifically, I think in Vermont, we actually wrote a very good law the first time around, and now it's an issue of enforcement and holding true to our our the values that were laid out in that law. So I think that we're actually in one of those rare situations as we've been talking to legislators about the problems, where those that are sympathetic to our cause will say, "Oh, well." write the bill and we'll get it in there. And it's like, what? no, we don't need actually more legislation, which is a very tiring process, I must say. We really just need oversight. And that fundamentally over the years, I've spent 20 plus years in the Vermont State House, spending quite a bit of time on different issues. And the, the most fundamental threat to the democratic process, even in a very small, reasonably transparent state like Vermont, is the lack of feedback loops between the legislature and the agencies. And the biggest challenge that we face for all the things that you were just talking about, both Laura and Brenda, the single greatest element to all of that is the unspoken aspects of culture and bias that find their way into these things. And so the biggest problem is that at the agency level, for instance, I don't think that that there is necessarily like malice at work. I think fundamentally it's just people bringing these cultural biases towards industrialization and a very sort of European idea of hierarchy that influences how we go about these things. Uh, and it's, it's really a question of those sort of core unspoken ideas. And so I think that the biggest fix that we could be doing is fundamentally in the legislative process, I would love to see each state have like a value statement and have its seven to 10 sort of core values principles um, like most religions have. And that every piece of legislation we have is tethered to one of those at least, and that we have we have a core, clear-eyed idea of how each piece of legislation is intended to reflect our shared values. And I think with those types of things in place, it would enable a review process that would allow us to better align with those things. I think between here and there, the structural thing any of us working on these things can do is just make sure that we are not failing to really name and articulate the details of those things within the legislation. So in the Vermont law, we have a hierarchy that very clearly states that here are the priority uses of, of these discarded food materials and feeding people who are food insecure is the, is the greatest priority above composting, above anything else. And the state has reinterpreted that as a menu of options. And to me and the legal counsel involved in this, it's quite obvious what the legislature intended, but relying on legal counsel at the agency to interpret these, I mean, these guys must be stretching before they show up to the meetings to figure out how to contort themselves through these, like these loopholes that they're creating. 
And so, you know, really what we should probably do at this point going forward is just add a sentence to our existing legislation that simply says, you know, this is intended to direct markets and tell markets what to do and, and put a very clear point on it. And related to that, that I just want to come back to beginning with what Laura said was prior to Sarah showing up at these conversations, only certain interests were in the room and at the table. And I think it ties into what you were saying, Brenda, which is I believe in a certain idea of kind of liberation economics. You know, I think that if we really want to chart the destiny of our communities, we need to own the economy that we're, that we need to own the economy. And Amen. we need to. Amen. <laughs> and, and, and that means, and all, all aspects of, of, of our communities. And so we, we really need to re, you know, kind of radically re-inhabit our communities at all levels. And that means being on school boards and that means being on neighborhood associations. And that means showing up at policy conversations. And we can't just be critics on the sidelines wishing it were different. Like this is the battle that we face right now. And it sometimes takes place in very unglamorous, unromantic situations. It's not all happening on the street. And you know, when we, when we fight out our values at some of these places where ultimate decision-making happens, it is the place that we begin to put a, a, you know, a stake in the ground and say, here's the line and crossing this line where you're having a negative impact on our community or on our soil going forward, that's the boundary. Like we're not crossing that and we can't fight that fight if we're not in those conversations. That's right. And I'll just say that I think an, a value that gets, I don't know, overlooked or lost that somehow we need to integrate both into the laws and the rules, but into the education and the, and the activism we're doing is this notion of not privileging large scale. We need to convince legislators that farmers and other small businesses that are rooted in community need to be protected. It's not just like, you know, clean, clean materials is important, source separation, all those things we're talking about. But we also need to integrate this idea of scale and ownership and small scale independent businesses. You know, small businesses rising need to fight for our place at the table and our place, uh, our, our slice of the pie. And the rules and the regulations need to, to reflect that. So I don't know, we could, you know, Laura and, uh, you know, do you have advice? That was great advice, Tom, about where we need to be. We, I, I think I've heard the saying, I didn't come up with this. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So we definitely, you know, need to be there and in all these places. But do you have specific advice for other folks in other states? I mean, I'll just say this is not particular to Vermont or Massachusetts. There's, it's a bill was passed in Maryland on the way to the governor's desk, New Jersey and New York state have similar bills, that is bills requiring large food waste generators to not put their food scraps in landfills or incinerators. But the way the rules are being written, it really is privileging dirty facilities and mixed waste. So, and at the expense of supporting operations like yours, farmers and worker-owned cooperatives and independent businesses. So do you, do you have advice for folks in other states? Laura, why don't we start with you? Sure. I, a lot of times people get in touch with me because of this food waste ban that Massachusetts was kind of early on in, in having this requirement for, for generators to, to, to sort of separate and, and compost material, right? So I say that now, source, separate, and compost material, and I'm just going to underline what Tom said. What you've got to do 
in your legislation and your regulation is define those terms very, very clearly and very, very carefully. Now, whether that's by doing, you know, the hierarchy, which in, in Massachusetts, it's worked well on one end. In other words, it has worked very, very well to do source reduction for food waste and to do food rescue has got, have done really, really well. That's great, but it hasn't done so great on the processing end of things. And so you've got to really, really define what's acceptable processing of this material. I don't care if you separate it, if you're just going to do the same or worse or other just as bad polluting things with the material. And the other thing that I, I have a little bit of resistance in me, even though I'm all about small is beautiful and, and, and small scale and local businesses and all that other kind of stuff, that does not mean we can't think about scaling this as a solution. In other words, you can have local control, but you can have scaled and scalable solutions. So for example, what we've been trying to get going and proposing in Massachusetts is much more a decentralized network of smaller processing facilities that require much, much less investment and much, much less like scrounging and scouring and, and hoarding uh, feedstock material. I'm talking about community scale anaerobic digesters. So even in urban environments like ours, what you'll do is start to reduce the, the carbon of, of all this transportation and the cost of all this transportation. And so what's being sold, again, because of the way the economic system is structured, what's being sold by the, the big waste industry as being cheaper solutions, cheaper by what standard, right? Because you know, they're not, they're not uh, accounting for any cost to the environment or to degradation of the, of the roads and highways infrastructure or the air. And they're also, you know, they're, they're also centralizing, they're centralizing both the profit, but they're also centralizing whatever benefit there is so that they can take things from hundreds and hundreds of miles in a waste shed. And then they can do this uh, waste to energy stuff and say they're producing massive kilowatts of energy where instead, if you distributed that collection system among solar and anaerobic digestion and, and did small scale energy production across that same region in a decentralized networked grid, say, alternative microgrids, you would produce much, much more power at a much, much lower price. And the benefits would be distributed among a much greater people and cities and towns and, and supporting positive supports for infrastructure. So that's my, my little wrap on that. Yeah, we agree. And I think you're absolutely right that small scale can be scaled up in a kind of spoken hub. You know, you can have lots of, of, of operations handling a lot more material. So we have a few minutes left, Tom. Any advice for folks in other states? I think that we, you know, just fundamentally need to clarify what our vision for our society is. You know, I think we have, we're in this place where we have this sort of oddly agnostic approach to society where we're, we're bickering about even being a society, I suppose, on some basic level. And so long as we continue to sustain the idea that something like white supremacy is just sort of like 
a matter of personal opinion and that it's somehow acceptable within a society to oppress a whole portion of the rest of society. Like this, these fundamental ideas of what is, what, what does it mean to, to be a group? You know, we, we didn't get together when we were hunters and gatherers and say, hey, why don't we all get together and we'll all work for that person over there. And then the rest of us will suffer, but at least that person will be really happy. I think we banded together out of mutual self-interest and out of the idea that we were stronger together. And so I think fundamental to any of the work that we're doing, because none of us can do, we can't cover all the bases, we can't do all of the work. But so long as we keep our work connected to these shared values, I think, um, I think we can continue to build in the capacity to, to, to recalibrate and fo refocus along the way to respond to the changing landscape around us and keep evolving. So I, I know that sounds etheric and kind of broad, but I, I really think um, the more we, we think of this as organizing and not just simply doing these one-off things, the more equipped we are to have the impacts of our work grow beyond our own capacity. And I think that's the greatest thing is just collaboration, clarification, and solidarity. And I think with those things, if we don't just throw our hands up and kind of give up on it, even though we're, we got strong headwinds, we'll be prepared. And I, I think there's many wonderful stories how community groups, whether they're fighting environmental racism or other forms of social or economic injustice or resource exploitation, they come together to, I think of the town of Randall, Washington, that came together to oppose the I-90 land corridor land exchange with Plum Creek Timber out in Washington state. And from that, a very disenfranchised, burnt out logging town, the opposition of, of, a, of a land trade that threatened to level their school from mudslides and, and destroy all the forests around them emerged a community coalition of, of unlikely partners that's working to advocate for their own community. And you see this all around in rural and, and urban areas. And the minute an or a community starts organizing, it becomes so much more powerful and capable of things beyond single issue campaigns. And I think that's where we start bringing in coalitions and we start building exponential capacity. 100%. Yeah, don't mourn. Yeah. Right, you know, we, we need to continue to fight for the world we wanna, we wanna live in and that includes independent businesses, farmers, diverse and equitable communities. So keep, keep fighting, keep fighting for the world we wanna live in. And thank you all for, the, for, thank you both for the work you do to move us closer on that path. Very impressive. You guys, you guys are, are rock stars and rot stars. <laughs> so well, thank I, you. I should just say, uh, Brenda and Jess, you know, I, I think uh, ILSR is a to totally pivotal organization to all of this work. And before you and I ever connected, Brenda, I found, found ILSR in my early kind of uh, coming up time. I was lucky for the people that I stumbled into, but I stumbled into Will Brinton and ILSR. And I think those are the so it comes comes full circle um, because I think you know we all we all need to stand on each other's shoulders and move information laterally and um, and that's movement building right there you know and and so you guys play a totally wonderful and pivotal part of that whole equation. Thank you so much. So we feel the same way about you guys. So I think that's all the time we have today, right, Jess? 
Yep. Unfortunately, it feels like this conversation could keep on going, but thank you guys so much for joining us. And we are just a listeners know you can find a lot of the things we talked about as well as more information about Laura and Tom's work linked on the website for this episode. So thanks so much again. This was great. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to everything we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Just El Fiaco, and edited by Drew Birschbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Just El Fiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. <laughs>